Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 51 once again, where we are going to be reading verses 7 through 12. Psalm 51, 7 through 12, you can find that passage on page 555 in your pew Bibles. We are looking once again at this very well-known psalm of David, written sometime after his being confronted by the prophet Nathan regarding the heinous sin which he had fallen into, beginning, of course, with his adulterous encounter with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and then, of course, delving deeper and deeper into the depths of wickedness, committing even murder, working deceit, all in a vain attempt to cover it all up. David, it would seem in his sin, had become far more conscious of the eyes of his fellow man than he was of the eyes of an all-seeing, all-knowing God of the universe. And I'm certain this morning, beloved, that all of us can relate to that error in fleshly judgment. We often, just like David, make the same shameful mistake of reducing our lives lived before the face of Almighty God to the perceptions of ourselves that we leave upon those who are around us. Rather than being broken by our sin, rather than coming to grips with the seriousness of our offenses committed committed against the Holy God, we often are carried away in our own vain imaginations into the error of pride, which leads always to some form of empty and repugnant legalism. We talked about it a little bit last week. Legalism at its heart completely ignores the horrific nature of our sin. Reducing the scope of our sin nature to beating the bad habits that happen to plague our lives. Though it sounds harmless enough, when we miss the heinousness of our sin nature, we in fact miss the fact that our sin is an absolute offense against the holiness of Almighty God. The legalist believes that in his performance of so-called good works, that he can now earn the favor of God. And even worse, the legalist assumes that he can then stay in the favor of God, that he can turn away the wrath of God by what he is doing, by his own piety and practice. It denies the corruption of our natures that we have all inherited from our father Adam. And it is, in fact, the very height of arrogance to fall into this particular error. And beloved, when we recognize it in our lives, when we realize that we too have thought far, far too highly of ourselves, we ought to, like David, fall on our collective faces before the throne of grace and pray as David prays. Abandoning any shred of self-exaltation, we should be clinging to the precious promise of God 
and to His incomprehensible mercy alone. We ought to never, even for a moment, deny the fact that we are sinners apart from God's grace. We are those standing in desperate need of that grace. We should never buy the lie of our flesh that we are at base good people in need of just a little bit more strength so that we can be even better people. So that we can overcome sin through our sincere efforts and our hearty list of discipline. David, we see in this lament of his soul as he repents before God, never for even a moment, clings to the externals of the law and to his ability to carry it out in an effort to satisfy God's wrath. We need to understand that. In fact, we see here in this 51st Psalm, a man who has been schooled by the law as to the very depths of his own sin. He looks heavenward in his agony over his sin, and he recognizes that his offense are direct, his offenses are directly against Almighty God Himself. His forgiveness and the easing of his seared conscience will only come about from the tender mercies of God. And the people who he had tried so desperately to trick into believing that he was clean ultimately were not a part of the solution to David's problem at all. He might fool men. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this morning, you might fool men. I might fool man. But Almighty God sees all. He knows all. Not just the actions that come from our flesh, but even the sin lying beneath those actions. He even knows our every thought. I hope that you see this morning the absolute folly of falling into this error of pride and legalism as you consider your own sin. And I think that you'll come to see in this example of true, authentic repentance here with King David that it's nowhere to be found here. There is ultimately no comfort for the one who thinks that they can please God or even worse, appease God by their work. There is no comfort for the one who thinks that repentance involves setting your face, setting your forehead like flint toward outward righteousness so that the world will know that you would never fall again. Your sins are committed against God himself and you cannot simply overcome them by strength of will. What has existed and what still exists in your flesh from the time that you were knit together in your mother's womb. But rest assured, beloved, despite that fact, we are most certainly not those who are without hope. David at his worst, and it's pretty bad, is not without hope. But he turns to his only true comfort in life and in death. And he looks for the mercy of God found in his precious promise and to the assurance that God gives that he will always remain faithful to those promises. 
This morning, it's my hope, beloved, to encourage you with this hope that we see here in David and to show you from the precious word of God that rock-solid assurance that all of those who are called the children of God have in common this morning. Assurance that is based entirely upon the promises of God and his own faithfulness to keep to those promises, regardless of what anyone else might think of our lives. So I'd like you to follow along as I read Psalm 51. Again, I'm picking up with verse 7 where we left off last week, and I will read through verse 12. David, crying out to God, says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity that we have to come to your word. And of course, we ask that you would clear our hearts and our minds of those things that distract us in this life. May we give our full undivided attention to your word so that hearing that word through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be transformed by that word for your glory. And we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, verse 7 is a very critical verse within this psalm for you and I to come to grips with. It is a verse that is absolutely packed with meaning. And I hope that you will also see it is, it is packed with a tremendous hope. It's a verse that should cause the true Christian's heart this morning to sing out with joy. To see and to realize that both David's and our own hope lie not in our perfectly keeping the externals of the law. But our hope lies in seeing past those externals to the glorious truth that they represent. David, after having acknowledged exactly what he was before God, a vile sinner, in desperate need of grace, turns to the glorious promise of Almighty God as his only source of hope. He cries out to God, he says, purge me with hyssop. There is a reason that David appeals to this one external of the law as his only source of hope. And we see here that he is sure of that, that source because he not only asks to be purged with hyssop, but he states very matter-of-fact that if God purges him, then there will be no doubt that he will in fact be clean. What is he talking about here with this petition to the Almighty to be purged with hyssop? 
Well, we see the use of hyssop on several occasions throughout the Old Testament in relation to the law. Hyssop was a a small leafy shrub that was directed by God to be used as an instrument to apply the covering of blood in ceremonial rites of purification. So in Leviticus chapter 14, you see hyssop was to be used in the ceremonial cleansing of the leper who had been declared healed from his leprosy or cleaned uh, as a result of his leprosy. The priest would then take the leper, they would go outside of the camp of Israel, and after thoroughly examining the leper, determining the leper to be healed or made clean, purified from the disease, the priest would then take two birds and hyssop along with cedar wood to perform the ceremony of purification. And the first bird was to be sacrificed. And the blood of that sacrifice was then spilled into an earthen vessel along with water. And then the priest would take the living bird, and he would, along with the cedar and the hyssop, and he would dip them into the blood and water, and then he would sprinkle them seven times on the one who had been cleansed or healed of their leprosy. And then having covered them in the blood of the sacrifice, the priest would then pronounce that person to be ceremonially clean and allow them to rejoin the covenant people of God where they would once again be awarded the full benefits of that privilege. Not the least of which was, of course, corporate worship. And we know, of course, that these ceremonial laws were but mere shadows of the glorious truths that they ultimately represented. They all found their full culmination, their fulfillment, ultimately in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see hyssop also used in other sacrifices and and ceremonies. We see it used in acts of, of consecration, where the priest would be instructed to sprinkle the blood on the altar of sacrifice in the book of Numbers. Hyssop was the instrument that was used to apply the sprinkling of blood. But perhaps one of the most memorable times that we see hyssop used comes to us in Exodus chapter 12. In the institution of the Passover. And I think we will see here for good reason that this is probably what David has in view here. Not that he may not be thinking of those other things as well. Ultimately, it is what is implied by the use of this law language here that's important for us to grasp, not the specific instance to which David was referring. But in Exodus 12, we have the institution of the Passover. And again, we are reminded that it is but a ceremonial shadow of the glorious reality that is in Christ Jesus. The Israelites were given this rite as a sacrament, as a sign and a seal of the mercy of Almighty God and of the magnificent love of Almighty God for his people and leaving them untouched as he prepared the heart of Pharaoh to let his people leave their captivity in Egypt and go into the land promised to their fathers by killing all of the firstborn in Egypt. 
We know that that killing would be severe and devastating to all of Egypt, that it would reach all the way from the firstborn of the servant girl grinding at the handmill to the firstborn of the mighty Pharaoh, robed in splendor, sitting upon his throne. It would even include the firstborn of all of the livestock and all of the other animals in the land of Egypt. It would be an unforgettable night of blood and death and destruction that would serve to terrify even the stoutest heart in Egypt. But the Israelites, those to whom belonged the precious promises of God, they would be left untouched by the angel of death if they only did what God told them to do. I won't go through the entire procedure of the Passover this morning. It's laid out for you in detail in Exodus chapter 12. But I do want to mention just one of the main details of it. And it's an important one. The Israelites were all to take and sacrifice on the 14th day of that month a perfect, spotless, without flaw, without blemish, lamb or goat from among their flocks. And they were to take the blood of the animal that they sacrificed and they were to take hyssop and they were to dip the hyssop into the blood of the sacrifice and they were to to sort of paint it across the lintel of their their door posts on their homes, the top and the sides of the doors on their homes. And they were to remain inside of those doors behind that blood on the doorway until the morning. And when the angel of death came at that, on that night, bent upon the deaths of the firstborn in Egypt, he would see the blood covering the doorways of the people of God and he would graciously pass over them and allow them to live leaving them unaffected by his fierce campaign of wrath and justice. And God instituted it to be a lasting memorial to the people of God, a holy feast to the Lord. And it was to be carried out throughout their generations. Those who were covered by the blood would be passed by in the judgment of God, not because of their purity, their perfection, but because of the purity of the spotless one, whose blood served as a covering, which would ultimately be provided by the gracious, merciful hand of Almighty God himself in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ the one of whom the blood of sheep and goats could only point towards. Flickering little shadows of the reality that was casting them. And David, by the grace of God in the throes of his repentance, goes in his repentance not to the external action of the law, but to the reality that it signifies. Do you see that here? And he rightly 
pleads with God for the reality, not the shadow. The substance standing behind the shadow. Look at what's happening here. David is not repenting at the tabernacle. He's not at a temple. Look at what's happening here. David is not running to the priest who alone can carry out the rites of purification, is he? He's looking past the sign, past the seal of the external action to the thing signified in the action. The perfect, righteous blood of the true spotless lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, which covers the sin of the people of God so that he sees his perfect righteousness covering us and can hide his face from our sins and blot out our transgressions. Do you see that here with David? All with his holy justice remaining unmolested by our sinfulness. And we need to see it. Only God can remove our transgressions. And he himself provides the means of removing them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The true spotless lamb, it is his blood alone that covers our sin for eternity. And David looks to the seal and he acknowledges by looking to what is signified by the seal that we are given true, real, steadfast assurance of both pardon and life and communion with Almighty God. Beloved, we do this today, right? This is what we confess about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, isn't it? which of course replaced the sacrament of the Passover, which David is alluding to. Listen to the words that we confess in the Belgic Confession of Faith, Articles 33 and 35. In Article 33, dealing specifically with the sacraments and their benefits to us, we agree with the Belgic Confession of Faith when it says, we believe that our God, mindful of our crudeness and our weakness, has ordained sacraments for us to seal his promises in us, to pledge his goodwill and grace towards us, and also to nourish and sustain our faith. And listen, because it gets better and better. He has added these to the word of the gospel to better represent to our external senses both what he enables us to understand by his word and what he does inwardly in our hearts, confirming in us the salvation that he imparts to us. Do you see this morning where David's hope lies? Where our hope lies? Not in the external outward actions. Externals may satisfy man, but Almighty God looks past those actions at the heart behind it. And when we participate in the sacraments, our eyes look to the outward manifestations that we witness with our external senses and having already opened our eyes to the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God enables us by his word and sacrament 
to understand what he is doing inwardly in our hearts. Confirming in us the salvation that he has imparted to us. The Belgic continues in that article, Article 33, to say, For they are visible signs and seals of something internal and invisible, by means of which God works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So they are not an empty and hollow sign to fool and deceive us, for their truth is Jesus Christ, without whom they would be nothing. Do you hear the beauty of those words this morning? The Belgic continues to give us a fuller understanding in Article 35, speaking more specifically about just the sacrament of the Holy Supper. And I can't go through the entire article this morning. I'm just going to read a portion of it to you. And I'll commend it to your attention if you're unfamiliar with it by telling you that there are men who have written volumes upon volumes of very thick and heavy books on this very subject that do not have the clarity or the beautiful simplicity of detail found in this one article of the Belgic Confession of Faith. It's well worth your attention. Listen to the words that we as a body confess. Now it is certain that Jesus Christ did not prescribe his sacraments to us in vain. Since he works in us all that he represents by these holy signs. Although the manner in which he does it goes beyond our understanding and is incomprehensible to us, just as the operation of his spirit is incomprehensible. Yet we do not go wrong when we say that what is eaten is Christ's own natural body and what is drunk is his own blood, but the manner in which we eat it is not by the mouth, but by the spirit through faith. In that way, Jesus Christ remains always seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, but he never refrains on that account to communicate himself to us through faith. How do we partake of the benefits of Jesus Christ in the sacrament? By the Spirit through faith. How is it that we sinners are reconciled to a perfectly holy, perfectly just God who cannot bear the presence of sin? Is it by our perfectly carrying out the externals of the law that we've already failed in? Is it by the signs and the seals? No. It is by the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ and His righteousness, His perfect work on our behalf. Do you see the folly this morning in taking pride in what you perceive yourself to be doing for God? There's no room for legalism in the kingdom of God. There's no shred of legalism to be found in the genuine repentance of King David before the face of his God. He is on his face before God and he makes no rash vow. Do you see that? There's no promise of perfection from this point forward. There's no resolution to try much harder not to sin next time. There's no vow to never again be such a fool, just heartfelt sorrow for sin and a reminder of the promise and God's faithfulness to bring about all that He promises. Do you understand? 
brothers and sisters in Christ, if this is the truth, then is it not time to leave behind our masquerading in righteousness, our striving to earn rest, joy, and very real comfort in Jesus Christ? Do you hear the word of God? Do we continue to trust in ourselves, in our own pathetic attempts, our own vain, undoubtedly mistaken, absolutely inferior versions of righteousness? Trusting in whatever misconstrued version of the law that we might have fooled ourselves into believing we are keeping is as foolish as looking at the sacraments and saying it's the actual doing, it's the actual participation in them that is itself the power to save. Which I hope and think that I know that none of us would say. David, crushed under the weight of his own sin before a perfectly holy God, neither blames his guilt on another, including the God who made him, Nor does he belittle the extent of his own wickedness and his offense by asking simply for a set of eyes that would maybe not see quite as well. You know, so he could could avoid the lusting after beautiful women that led him astray in the first place. Which is exactly what we are prone in our flesh to do. We say, if God would just remove the temptation. If only I didn't have all these terrible influences. My kids would be so much better if they didn't have to live in this culture that's influencing them. I just need to rid our life of all of these things and then I'll be righteous. As if sin and wickedness were assaulting us only from the outside and not emanating even from our own fallen hearts. But we see here David acknowledging his guilt going well beyond his wicked acts, going all the way back to his conception. When his corruption began, when he was created and he inherited that corruption from his father Adam. And he turns in hope, not to clinging to the externals of the law, but he looks past the signs, past the seals and the types. He looks past the shadows to the glory of the very thing which they lived to signify. And he finds hope and rock-solid assurance of pardon and eternal life in the promise of the person of Jesus Christ alone. You see the vanity of legalism. When you and I vainly trust in what is truly our inability, we not only move further and further into bondage and deeper and deeper into despair, and fear and anxiety. But we pervert the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ by proclaiming that he in fact died in vain. If we can do it, who needs Jesus or his bloody cross? This was the sin that Jesus himself attacked with the most vehemence during his earthly ministry. This was the sin that the Apostle Paul always drew his proverbial line in the sand on. Why? 
Because far from offering comfort to the weary sinner, standing in the need of the precious grace of Almighty God in the person and work of Jesus, it destroys that rest. It annihilates that peace. And it removes the comfort of the one who's seeking to flee from the bondage of sin, finds refuge solely in the arms of Jesus Christ. David, even in the very midst of living under the law, knows that the law stands to condemn him. It shows him his utter wickedness. Indeed, it is his schoolmaster, his tutor, to lead him to Christ. And his wickedness is such that it cannot be remedied by the blood of animals, administered by the filthy, sin-stained hands of any man, or by the externals themselves, but only by the one that they are pointing to. Only by the one who came as a man to reconcile man for man's transgression against the holy law of God. Man who in his entirety is corrupt because of sin and so stands condemned by the law. Beloved, do you see it here? I pray that we do. We see it again with the second half of the verse of verse seven. David referring to the ceremonial washings with water in the holy law of God. Again, David looks past the seal to the thing being signified. And again, we think of baptism. And what the external points us towards, that just as water carries away the filth of our bodies, so the blood of Jesus Christ, the thing signified, washes away our inward filth and corruption and covers us in the radiant, glorious garment of his perfect righteousness. And again, David's assurance is not in the physical external water of ceremonial washing but in the things signified by that water, the washing that can only come by the hand of a merciful God extending his mercy towards his children. He says, you God, you wash me. You wash me, then I will know that I can be whiter than snow. I will be cleaner than clean if you wash me. It's just like we are reminded of in question and answer 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism, answering, how is it that you're righteous before God? Right? I talk about this one all the time. You get to that point, how, how is it that you'll be righteous before God? And you get to the end of that answer and it says, it will be as if I had never committed nor had any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ fulfilled for me, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. This model of repentance is so far removed from legalistic wrangling that it destroys the very idea of it. If we take the word of God seriously at all. Throughout this humble prayer, David recognizes that his hope lies solely in the grace of God. And even though the attainment of that grace is out of his hand, He has assurance in the promises of God that culminate, that will ultimately find their fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He with confidence then goes before the throne of grace and he asks that God would make him to hear joy and gladness 
that the very bones within him, crushed as they were by the hand of Almighty God, would once again rejoice in his salvation. And even that joy, that gratitude, that is ours when we have seen what we are in the eyes of the law and we have in our sorrow had our eyes turned toward the Lord Jesus Christ where we learn that we are saved despite what we are, not because of what we are. Even that joy is a gift from our Heavenly Father, further proving that we are in absolute, utter reliance upon the providential, gracious hand of Almighty God. David begins with an acknowledgement of his sin before God. Then he pleads on the mercy of God as his only hope. And he asks confidently to be comforted with joy from the only source of both. I hope this is a comfort to those of you who are even this morning hurting, smarting under the weight of your own secret sin. When you realize that not only is there full and complete pardon in Jesus Christ, but there is joy like no other joy your soul could ever know. David asks for the joy of gratitude, thankfulness, to be awakened within his heart again. He does not beat his back with cords. He does not walk away in pity and self-loathing and consider that to be his work of repentance. But this Holy Spirit-fueled prayer is that he would walk away from this encounter with God with songs of grace upon his lips emanating from his heart, treasuring the gift of God that makes life, this, this life, joyful despite the constant sorrows and suffering but so infiltrates our lives in this veil of tears on this side of glory. We see clearly here that David's hope, David's trust, David's confidence, his assurance are all rooted entirely outside of himself in the precious promise of a gracious God who so loved his people that he would give his only begotten son And whosoever should believe in him will have life eternal. Beloved, there could be no greater foundation for your hope this morning than this. Because Almighty God will bring about everything that he has promised us in his word. And I hope that this proclamation from the word of God will move you towards joy because you are his child. Because you belong to him. He has purchased you with his blood. You have been adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you sit here in the sanctuary this morning as an heir to an inheritance that cannot be measured in this world's vain and foolish estimation estimation of value. No language on earth could adequately surmise the value of your inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if it only strikes a little fear into your stony heart this morning, which will succumb to pride, I pray that you, by the grace of God, will not continue to stiffen your neck 
that you will not continue to dig in your heels and fight. I pray that God will grant to you true repentance and fill you with the peace that actually passes all understanding. And that today, broken, crushed by the weight of your own sin before the face of Almighty God, that you too will run to the arms of Jesus. And truly seeing him, that you will join us and singing a closing hymn this morning, allowing not just your mouth, but your very heart to sing with the joy that is ours in Jesus Christ. Amen.